You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business Unusual. So welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Business Unusual podcast. Today I'm joined by the CEO of the Take-A-Lot Group, Maman Khai Matlara. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rolf. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're saying you've got bright lights behind you. You look like a, a movie star there with those that, that background. It looks very uh, awesome. Well, I think that is uh, an indication of what the future can hold for e-commerce. So <laughs> the future is bright. <laughs> future is bright indeed. And we're going to go into that. And I see all the logos there. So you've got Take-A-Lot, you've got Mr. D, you've got Superbolus, because those are all the brands under the Take-A-Lot group. And you're the new CEO. You're not new anymore. In fact, I, I looked. It's next week. It's one year on the job. And they say this is a really good time to look back because you, <laughs> <laughs> you obviously had certain expectations. You've had certain challenges. And you've had certain successes, and we really want to dive into some of those things. Um, but, but you know, you're you're also a woman from Limpopo, and right now, as we stand in South Africa, you are my, one of the most influential women in technology as well. So, I want to talk around your journey. So, I want to talk about take a lot, and I want to talk around e-commerce and retail, and you know, digitization. I think that's really awesome. But I also want to talk around you as a person and your journey because I think you have got such an inspiring story to tell other South Africans as well. And so, maybe you want to take us back to the young girl from. <laughs> From Limpopo and and sort of you know what what brought around this blossoming person to take on these big big challenges and to lead technology in Africa. Yeah, well, Rolf, I think you know everybody's story is always fascinating because, um, as someone said, you only connect the dots looking backwards uh, and, and never forwards. Um, so, I mean, um, I grew up in rural. Land, uh, in a village called Jane Furs. And I was educated um, in, in the local area and I had the opportunity to be the, the starting class um, of a church school that was being um, restarted after a couple of years of it being closed. And so I think that also provided the opportunity to be able to have exposure to people from different uh, backgrounds and cultures because a lot of our teachers were um, either from the UK, Europe or the US that were volunteering in their gap year uh, together with other permanent local um, teachers. Uh, so I guess that's, that's where some of my broad exposure to the world began. Um, and uh, I then left to study chemical engineering at WITS. And uh, that was also an astonishing academic experience. And being in Johannesburg at the time that uh, we, we were there, which was just uh, 93, just before, um, you know, the first uh, elections. Democratic um, elections, yeah. Yes. And, um, and and really being in the melting pot of, you know, socio-political and economic uh, dynamics. And, and that was also an extraordinary experience. Um, and uh, it was after those years that I then uh, had the opportunity to work in many different industries from... Um, you know, Unilever through to, um, to, to, you know, places like S.A.B. Miller, where I spent a number of years, 
and um, and and then ended up at Ilova Sugar, and uh, where I am today. So I, I guess in short, it's it's been a journey that I couldn't have written looking forward. I, I think I was always just moved by following what I was interested in and what I was uh, pulled towards and let that be the the pull that guided um, my decisions at each point and the aspiration to always be growing and to be better and to, to contribute um, in every area that I worked in. Yeah, I mean, um, it sounds like one of those things—a fairy tale almost. But um, and it's so funny how the, the expectations aren't there, but possibly the ambition and the and the attitude or the 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 beliefs are there to just do good things. So I, I mean, I just want to go back to the school quickly because it's interesting you said that. Um, we're, I've got three young boys; they're not so young anymore. One's almost twenty-three, but um, you know, I'll pretend they're young. And when they were when we were making decisions around their education, I did some research and I was like, "What's the benefit of a you know public school versus a private school?" And they they really they basically said that the the benefit of a public school is if you're going to a religious public school, it's as good as a private school. Mm-hmm. Did did you feel that when you went to university? Did you feel that you'd got the same sort of level of education, or were you working extra hard to against your peers, or did you have natural yeah. sort of gift of of education? Or <laughs> I, th- I think natural. Some some would say yes. I think everybody has a certain level of base talent, and where though you go from from that to the next level depends on application. Um, I think it helped that I didn't believe that I was naturally the smartest and therefore I did invest um, in in working hard. And there was always the desire to be in the top quartile of the class, you know, Um, because, you know, if you're in a place and you apply, you're spending hours of your life, why wouldn't you want to be the best? Um, And... And I do think that I was fortunate in that the school that I was in, because it wasn't necessarily being run by the by the government system, it was really more of an independent school before even those schools were defined into categories. Yeah. Um, so it was literally an old um, rural school that was... Um, Funded by donors, it was yeah. apart from church, but a lot of it was was donors, and we had to raise money. and And so every year was, you know, you're building a new classroom. Or some of the years we were intense before, you know, there was enough money to build a classroom. And that's how uh, the school evolved. Um, by the time we finished, then everybody, you know, had a classroom, which yeah. which sounds kind of strange but that was the reality there and it was because of that context that we were able to get um, as I said with teachers that were volunteers from different parts of the world that would come for a year or two and they would bring with with them their body of knowledge their access to um, knowledge bases from the environments that they'd come in um, and and that was part of what enriched our, our experience. And so I do feel that we did get um, more than just what was the standard uh, syllabus. It was always supplemented by yeah. reading and access to other different uh, sources. And and I think that's what makes a difference. Which today in a world where now a lot of that is available through kind of online schools or, or online apps, etc. Yeah. Those are the avenues that can bring the extra for rural schools or under or schools that do not have necessarily all of the resources of, say, a private school yeah. uh, at their disposal. 
And and I mean, studying chemical engineering anyway is a, a massive achievement. Um, but but I mean, you were the first in your family to get a degree as well. And so, how was that 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 influence of of education and going further and getting this degree? How much was that a family sort of driven initiative versus the, you know your surrounding? Yeah, actually, I wasn't the first in my family to get a degree. My mom okay. and dad, uh, by the time I was going to university, they had gotten degrees. Uh, wow. Themselves, studying part-time, uh, studying part-time as parents and as uh, as community members. So in the mix of all of their other social responsibilities, they studied a part-time to, to get their degree. So my dad has a master's degree and my mom has an honors degree. Um, Congratulations! And so do many of their siblings. Uh, so, for fortunately for our family, it wasn't a first. I mean, I was the first, one of the first women in uh, black women in South Africa to receive a chemical engineering degree. There was only a handful at the time, and um, and and I guess the, the inspiration to do chemical engineering did not come from any, you know, having met anybody or having uh, thought that, you know, this person got this uh, job and they're really senior, therefore if they did engineering, do that. I think for me what it was was, I mean, my career counselor was a, a book in the library uh, in those days where you where you could read through different careers and talk to your teachers and, and be able to understand what some of those options were because I was very clear that I believed I could do more than uh, what my parents had as options, which is teacher or nurse, so you, you know, and I, I loved the sciences. I was uh, really good at it and wanted to pursue something more in that scientific field. And engineering... Uh, became a, a possibility. And so it really was just about understanding academically what it meant and yeah. the fact that it, it's a degree that is a great platform towards any future career you may want to have. And so that's what I loved about it is that it, it opens the gateway. It doesn't channel you into a narrow pathway. And, and that's why um, I, I was excited about it. Um, For sure. So it's funny. I mean, if you look at your career and you look at the degree, you, you, you struggle <laughs> to link it, right? I mean, people are going, she studied chemical engineering, but she and she worked at SAP, Coca-Cola, Lovo, and now, you know, Take a Lot. Where's the link? The link for me is... You know, I like to to explain to people that, that the wonderful thing about chemical engineering, or at least engineering, is that it's not about the specialization and not about necessarily the content. It's about what it teaches you, which is how to solve problems, mm. how to create opportunities out of what, whatever reality you're dealing with. Yeah. It teaches you about uh, structure and, you know, and, and being able to create frameworks in the absence of certainty. Um, and so, it, it, you know, it's a lot of it which is more about systemic um, thinking and uh, problem solving yeah. and the curiosity to develop what's not yet uh, in existence, yeah. that's where the link the, the link comes through for me. Yeah. And when you think about what um, you know, my career has been. When I finished business school, my first job were after business school was at Appletizer, and that was at the time when the ambition was to to globalize the brand and in particular to expand our presence in Africa and the rest of the continent. And so it was a very blank mandate. Uh, it was my job to figure out where, what, and how, and, and then go forth and make it happen. Um, but, so there was no certainty around this is the path to take, and this is how you're going to solve it. 
There was no toolkit. One had to figure all that out. And that is, you know, for me, leveraging some of that um, learning and training to, to be able to go into those spaces. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. I, w- I was I was watching a, uh, an interview with Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's partner, and and uh, yeah, uh, Warren Buffett sort of accredits him being more cleverer than him. And one of the things that they say that Charlie's very good at is framing or frameworks for thinking and solving difficult and complex problems. And so it's interesting that you're mentioning it and how it's helped you in your career and your advancement with this complexities and and the unknown. And and so maybe it's worth sharing with us maybe some of the frameworks that you go into when you are considering these things. So, you know, um, I think one of the things he was talking around was should should the U.S. be helping or doing business with China? And he said, well, this the framework is that you're not considering the second and third activations. If we don't do business with China, other countries will. It's not going to stop China producing goods. It's going to limit our ability. So we have to actually do business with these people. So I was wondering what sort of frameworks do you, do you work with when you are faced with some of these challenges of the unknown? Because in your career, you've had unknowns. In the yeah. businesses you work with, you've got unknowns. Yeah. There will be different frameworks based on any kind of uh, problem that you're looking at. But fundamentally, I always start off by trying to understand in a very simple way what is the problem you're trying to solve. Because I think simplifying and being able to articulate in a single sentence, what am I trying to solve here? Sometimes really, and that conversation around always then following the thread to say, you know, the why, the why, the why, Mm. and until you get to the bottom of what what is what is really the problem? Because I do find that once you're clear what yep. you're trying to solve for, it does make a mountain of difference in terms of where to focus. And it's really just about um, trying to take everything from where you the starting point and trying to peel it down to see if it leads anywhere. If you end up really not um, being able to arrive at a solution at the end it means you're asking the wrong question so you've got to go back and say you know what is what is what is it that i'm trying to solve here um simplicity for me is the is is the biggest framework um if, if you if we can't simplify the problem you will create complexity and opaqueness in in, in how you you go about things and the, the the one that I learned years ago was around when you when you're working on solutions, always be able to say, okay, what what will you do on Monday morning? Which speaks to is there enough clarity and simplicity of action that you can actually say on Monday morning, this is what I'm going to do. If you still are talking hyperboles, then you have not arrived at a solution. So. I think those are those are some of the some some of the tricks and and being able to say if I understand the problem what are the all the possible solutions and if I then take each possible solution and say what would need to be true for that to be the answer and then you just uh, work from there and then you you prove or disprove your 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 theory and then you can discard it and then move to the next possible outcome. And, and I mean, um, taking other people's, you know, stakeholders into that journey is that is that a difficult thing? Do you think to try and align what they see as true and what you see as true, and maybe a, a common goal is is that generally a difficult thing? Do you find it's easy to start the conversation around clarifying what it is we're solving for? And yeah. then you can have the conversation around what are the potential solutions without judging any solution first. You say, well, we don't, nobody here already has the answer. So let's talk through all of the different uh, solutions that, that, that could be true. And then you go through that process. Okay, so 
what would support that this is the answer? And then you see if the facts then support that. If it doesn't, then you're able to, to, to move on uh, and then look at the next uh, possible uh, set of solutions. Yeah. And even in the end, you've got to ask, what is it that we haven't thought about, which, which makes sure that we think about another perspective? Because, you know, sometimes you get very much tunnel vision into this is a problem and and this is then the solution. And then you've got yeah. to look at the problem from a different perspective and say, well, will the other stakeholders still see this as the same as the problem? And then that could allow you to be able to get different perspectives around how you could go about solving that problem or implementing the solution. So, I mean, you've got a couple of challenges coming up. So, I mean, you had your first one year in the role. Obviously, there was some expectations, some challenges, and some successes. I mean, wh what would you say your, your so, sort of top three expectations were and, and challenges and successes? What would you say that they were in the last sort of year? I think um, in terms of um, expectations, um, I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is that whatever your expectations are, they they are never accurate because you're going into an unknown environment, right? And so you always need to to expect the unexpected. Uh, so for me, my my expectation was a, a fast moving, uh, very young, dynamic environment. Yeah, and I found that to be true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How was the tech? I, I, how was the tech, though? Because I'd imagine that would be a little bit daunting working with these techies and like, how am I going to understand them? Was that, was that somewhat an expectation? And and how did that play out? Yeah, I think you know, if you've also worked with engineers in, yes. in normal manufacturing environment, and for some people working with with marketing people is is that similar challenge because you're speaking a different language and working with Creative. finance, you know, they, yeah. they speak a very different uh, language. And so I think it's it's always, um, everybody always speaks a different language. So you, I expected that there will be a language, you expected acronyms. And then, you know, you, you're always amazed at how every industry and every business within that will have, a whole host of uh, acronyms or shorthands that they use all the time. And you're constantly um, trying to figure out what do you mean? What did you just say in that yeah. sentence? Let's speak English here. Um, so I think it's, it's about not being afraid to be um, the one that doesn't know and ask those stupid questions yeah. as it were. Um, because I think that's, that's, that's a one way to, to operate. And do you think your time at SAP is trying to and and do you think your time at SAB in Mozambique helped that a little bit, where you were, you went into a different almost culture in many ways? Yeah, I worked in uh, Mozambique and in Tanzania, both of them that were very different cultures. Um, in Tanzania, I had to learn a Swahili to be able to be an effective marketeer there. And similarly, in uh, Mozambique, I started to learn Portuguese. It was so much harder, but... You know, it's a different culture, it's a different environment. And when you're doing consumer work, you always have to be thinking around the context of that culture and that environment and not try and extrapolate too much from other markets um, and, uh, and, and those environments. So you, you take out what are human truths, but make sure that you spend time trying to understand the current reality. And yes, I think that experience and that repeat exposure to that lessons to start by trying to understand mm. uh, rather than to to be understood is, mm. is how to best approach these new environments for sure because i think my question was going to be how was the first 100 days of your of your role because they say that that's you know any good ceo that they sort of they they get rated on their first hundred days but quite often what we've seen successful ceos don't do a lot in their first 100 days they try and learn as much as possible absolutely and i i think 
you know, the first 100 days forces a false sense of pressure to come up with answers when you don't even know what the questions are. Mm. I think for me, it is about spending the time to understand and to learn because yeah. there's a lot you don't know. And I can, I can tell you that some of the thoughts around things we should be doing in the first three months, by the time it was month six, I'm like, I'm so glad I didn't push that. That is such a disaster. Um, and, and, and also the, the risk of it is that you come in with a cookie cutter approach mm. from a previous experience and you're trying to apply it because you have to do something in a hundred days. You no, know, actually your most important thing you have to do for yourself and for the, the team and the people that you're working with is understand the environment, understand what are the questions um, and play with, um, with, with some of what you think some of the answers are and follow that through to see if some of those things are coming, are, are making sense. So, yeah. so I, I, I do think it is necessary to go slow so you can go fast. Sure. And I mean, we're talking about challenges. I mean, one of the things that certainly we had Africa Tech Week last month at the CTICC. And I think for us, what we saw in the technology space, certainly globally, but in Africa, is that if we bring people together, policymakers, big business, entrepreneurs, um, and academics, we're far more able to solve our problems. How hard has it been as a challenge to deal with these different stakeholders who align to the business? Yeah. Ooh, I think it's it's a lot easier to deal with um, with, with some stakeholders than, than other. I think the, the stakeholders that we deal with in, in the business are related to, um, you know, some of our business partners. Yeah, our consumers are a are a key stakeholder. Our employees yeah. are a key stakeholder. Yeah, externally looking, then you have um, I guess different government agencies. We yeah. have the reality now of the competition commission with the with the market inquiry. Yeah, which has been quite a a demanding and quite intense mm. process. Yeah, uh, and one that we we have to invest in constructive engagement in yeah. because of the consequences, not just for our primary business, but for the development of digital economy uh, going forward. And, and yeah. so those are those are those are challenging because you, you know, when you're a business, you you see things from a particular angle yeah. and regulators will see things from a particular angle. Yeah. And our end goal is, can we find each other in yeah. a way that allows room for the, the unknown and the dynamicness of this uh, industry to, to still flourish and emerge? Because what we are building today, in a lot of ways, is not yet uh, in, in place. Yeah. Right? So e-commerce might be, you know, uh, 27 years old. But yeah. in South Africa, it is about, you know, uh, 12, 13 years old. Yeah. And that means that for us, it doesn't mean, you know, the next 10 years will be like other developed markets previous 10 years. It, it will evolve because of our own unique circumstances and set yeah. of conditions uh, that present themselves. And so we need to be careful to... Um, to not apply too much of what has evolved elsewhere and impose it into our own market and allow ourselves the opportunity to craft our own future yeah. around how this this needs to evolve. I, I can't help but thinking of like Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs or you know <laughs> Gates because they faced a similar sort of strain from their policymakers. Um, Uber had the same thing in London. Um, and it seems that policymakers generally are more reacting as opposed to, um, I don't know, looking forward and 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 looking at what the future can hold. Are you are you seeing that as the the biggest challenge for you? Is, is that they're jumping on the bandwagon of the now, but actually it's the opportunity of the future. 
I think the the challenge that we are faced with is that we're in an economy that is lacking in uh, organic growth, and where there is where, where our regulators and our government have the pressure to be thinking about how do we create environments where the growth is going to be inclusive, where it can generate more jobs, um, and, and trying to preempt whether any, if you leave the industries alone, will those socioeconomic needs be automatically addressed, or do we need to intervene, and how do we intervene to create this environment? And, and the challenge with um, the digital economy is, in, in as much as it's 20-odd years old in the in the world, it is a very dynamic beast. Mm. Um, and, and so it is, uh, you can't reference and say, you know, for the last 20 years, these have been the issues, and therefore I think this is what's coming up next because mm. it's evolving. You know, the technology evolves every single day. Yeah. And so you're chasing something you cannot catch. So I think it's kind of the the the, the political needs, uh, the you know the, the need for economic growth, yeah. and also the need for, I guess, how do you create spaces where there is freedom to evolve unconstrained, which is what I believe. Is necessary for digital economies, which is very hard for regulators because their job is to create certainty, right? Yeah. And for us, it's actually uncertainty is the fuel for evolution. Right? And yeah. there needs to be some element of that because by trying to constrain and say the future must conform to these requirements, you may actually not get to the future. Yeah. And that's the tough balance to, to create. Um, and, and there's no, I don't believe there is a clear precedent that says regulate these four things and don't regulate these four mm-hmm. things. We, we've got to, we've got to feel um, our way through that and, and have the openness to say we, we, we don't have an exact blueprint answer. And so we need to constantly be engaging around what's working, what's not working and having a more uh, responsive regulatory uh, approach. I think one of the things that we saw in COVID is that um, the general sentiment from consumers around um, business, media, and government was that they trusted business more than media and certainly governments. And so there has been a change in terms of a lot of organizations have realized employees are really important to them, their suppliers are really important to them, and their customers are massively important to them. So the need for regulation and policies is is almost less needed. That the old maybe ideologies of businesses being abusive on their suppliers, their employees. People are voting now with their feet. Um, are, are you finding that? Are you finding that actually you're doing the work yourselves? You're, you're, you're self-almost policing, you're self-regulating yourselves? Absolutely. Because, you know, as you said, the wonderful thing about retail is that people are voting every single day, every single minute. And when you also look at our partners, we have a marketplace on takelot.com that has over 7,700 uh, SMEs that are participating in that platform. And Is that South African or all global South SMEs? African. South African no, SMEs, 7,700. What do more people know about that? Yeah. Well, I, I, I hope that in conversations like this, <laughs> yeah. that's, I mean, that is. Aware. That's that's surely got to be one of the key objectives is because I'd imagine they're employing a lot of people. And, and I think the focus often with I've heard from policy is around creating jobs, but it's yes. businesses that create jobs. Absolutely. And I think when you look at our ecosystem, we commissioned a study a few months ago and it came back with an indication that in our ecosystem, when you take our 
employees, our sellers, our restaurant partners, and um, and our and our driver network is that ecosystem currently generates at thirty three thousand livelihoods, and so that's just one young business that's eleven years old and what we've been able to build, and I think that is one of the things that makes me really passionate about this business because the the business model is deliberate around saying that we grow when our small, medium enterprise and our partners grow. And yeah. so it is by design an inclusive growth model. So when you say Technolog Group is achieving um, great success, what you actually are saying is that there are many small, medium enterprise businesses and contractors that are thriving, that are driving that growth uh, yeah. And that's what South Africans are doing every day by choosing to support uh, take mm. a lot. The ripple effects are immense uh, yeah. in terms of generating jobs because every single business um, that is on our platform may start off as one or two employees. As they grow, they're yeah. going to require more support. They're going yeah. to use uh, couriers. Yeah. They're going to use banking services. They're going to pay taxes, yeah, etc., uh, etc. Et they so better it also brings <laughs> a lot of people into the formal economy um, as, as as they as they grow their, their their businesses on our platform, and that's wonderful. And Mamahau, is is that something that you see? You're going to be supporting more the people that are already on the platform, the seven thousand seven hundred, or is it about you expect? far more entrepreneurs joining that platform in the next five to ten years? Our expectation is to make sure that it grows. Okay. Because if we're going to grow, we need um, more um, sellers on our platform to be able to service that growth, to bring those interesting products that South Africans are looking for. Yeah. Um, and, and so success is we all grow together, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, if I go on social media, a lot of the times I'm served with either ads of people learning e-commerce sites or, like I said, I've got young children. They're really fixated around this e-commerce, digitization, digital marketing sort of environment. It's like hugely exciting for them or empowering. And there's so many people who have got like side hustles and like they see yes. this as their 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 opportunity for independence and freedom. So this is not just like a nice thing absolutely. to have. These people are passionate about yeah. this. Yeah, absolutely. And it is highly empowering. I mean, if you look at both from two sides. So first of all, as a consumer, I grew up in uh Land as 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 I so my parents are still there, my aunts and uncles still live in in, in those communities. And what e-commerce has done is that for me today, I can order things on, on, on take a lot of superfluous and they will arrive at my parents' uh, door, right? They don't have to go somewhere else to fetch and they will arrive at their door in, in a rural place without an address, right? And so when you think about how that opens up access to quality retail products for many South Africans, regardless of your geography or your um, your your location. It is it really does broaden access, right? So that, that's the one part that says democratizing access to quality retail, regardless of any kind of uh, environment that you're in. The second part is when you think about the, the sellers, there are many where they are starting out. So there are those that are kickstarting their business. They are making certain products that they would like to take to market. There are those that had started on the side, and this is an opportunity to grow their business. And, and, and then as they all grow, they start to start building scale um, on, on the platform. And so what that means is that you can be a business sitting in Sukukuni land. You're making certain um, products that you that you sell on the platform without having to physically leave your location. Or you're living in, in, in the township. 
and you have uh, certain products that you have access to that you either developed or you bought or you know your uh, there are community members that are that are making those products and you're able to to sell on take a lot um, and that is empowering because it means those individuals can actually start or grow their business and have instant access to a marketplace of over 4 million customers uh, from day one. We have, we have very uh, low startup costs, very little friction, and it is incredibly easy to do. You can be in business within, within weeks and not months and years. Um, and, and you don't need to be raising capital to build a store to, you know, or to, you know, all of that, all of those difficult things. So it is immensely empowering for a lot of our communities to have an opportunity to build a business and to create a livelihood for themselves and, uh, and, and their families. So it is undoubtedly the most powerful model to be able to transform uh, the, the economy of this country in my belief. For sure. And, and I can't help but think of that word, access to markets and access to finance. You know, you don't need access to finance if you've got that market, if you've got the scale. And so they're almost cheating in a way. They, they're jumping on the back of <laughs> take a lot. Um, and I think that's what many organizations need. They need that scale and access to markets. And so by, by being on your platform, it sort of, it, it, you know, it advances their opportunities. It's, it's synergistic, right? Because if they are coming on the platform, they are bringing uh, potentially a proposition that uh, is not on the market, or not already on the platform, or uh, will, will bring, um, you know, interest for those that are already on the platform to, to, to purchase. And so when that does well, then we're able to continue investing in the platform, which means then we're able to have more people that are able to come onto the platform and try their, their products. And if they're relevant, then they will do well. If they're not relevant, then, you know, they won't do well. But in the end, the consumers vote. Yeah. And it is, it is our belief that our job is to enable uh, consumers to be able to get the best product and the best service allow sellers to uh, provide the best quality products on the platform that are relevant yeah. and, um, and and to be able to make that ecosystem one that is supportive of each of those of stakeholders. I mean, you, you talk around um, investing in the system and the platform. And, and so we often think of like, we, we, we see the Mr. D everywhere um and and the scooters but you know, is it is drones a reality you know what what are the sort of other investments in technology that you're seeing that um south africans are going to be experiencing i think there'll be a lot more innovations that are to come and and the best answer is just you know to say um of, of watch and see Watch and see, uh, but yeah, <laughs> I think yeah, yeah. There's... So, so no, no little secrets you can give us here. Is it one of those things of we got to wait now? Yes, not today. Not, not today. today. <laughs> <laughs> Next week. Um, <laughs> I think. I think that um, you know, we, you know, we, we mentioned sort of um, Mr. Delivery being a partner of Take a Lot, and and I know that Kim Reed said it was one of his top sort of three achievements. People that and his, the stakeholders, and I, I sort of um, and and he talks around one of the reasons for that is because of your excellence in terms of delivery and making sure that there's clarity in that. And, and there was some talk around the post office being a little bit. Wanting to change some of the legislation around um, parcels for less than a kilo. So, so we know that one of your points of excellence is obviously delivering those things. And, and I often wondered before that could be one of the big challenges, the logistics. But if that's a high point, what are some of the challenges that you are experiencing that that you think needs to be solved? That other entrepreneurs should be should be trying to get their heads around helping 
to solve some of these challenges that maybe for e-commerce to grow in South Africa and Africa, we need to look at? Hmm. I think some of the challenges are very much around uh, adoption. I mean, when I talk about how empowering e-commerce can be, is in fact for, for, for many consumers, we still are only about 4% of, of mm. retail. And so I think one of the biggest challenges is how do we have more people taking the opportunity to use these platforms to save themselves time and money? Mm. I mean, when you think about many uh, working people, um, they the work Monday to Friday, and they only get to do their chores um, on, on the weekend. And if you could order your groceries, if you could order what you need from uh, Take a Lot Superbulous, uh, Mr. D, it's hours of your life that you can get back without having to go and uh, stand in queues, without having to pay for transport or petrol to go to um, to the outlets. And, and, and understand that this is part of the mix of retail that is available to you. Um, yeah. And so I think that is that is the one uh, most important thing that we need to be able to, to solve. And yeah. then, of course, um, it's around how do we make access to, um, to those digital platforms um, you know, seamless. And, yeah. and I think, you know, we we definitely make it a lot easier with, with our apps, but people need data. And, and I think there's a lot of work being done in making data more affordable, which is supportive of, of, of the adoption. And mm -hmm. so I think it's about how do we get more South Africans over the hump in terms of understanding that this is actually liberating uh, in terms of uh, years and hours of your life that you otherwise will not get back. Sure. I mean, uh, um, the, the people in the office, they, they gave the word easy. So that's what they say. It's just easy. And you're right. And, and I think that the there's, a, there's a phrase, it's time is money. And so, you know, we, we normally work and we look at when we're working and how much we're earning versus our time. And so this is another way of, of winning back your, some of your time. I'm often, um, I, you know, regularly I go mountain biking and I go to these small towns in the Western Cape, Krabow, for instance. And I often see in like a weekend, especially a Saturday morning, queues and queues and queues of people waiting at the banks. And so, and, and I can't help but think, wow, um, I, I, I just couldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. And so how do we bring those people into this economy essentially is a big opportunity. I, I know that South Africa is about 4% and somewhere like China is close to 20, 25% of retail is done through e-commerce. And I say that because I was educated. It's, it's not e-commerce. This is retail, right? This is e-commerce is a it part is. of retail. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So how do you see us getting there? How do you see us getting to where China is or some of the other more developed countries? Because I, I read a, a blog a little while ago that was from an American lady who went through South Africa and she said, there's 10 things you don't know about South Africa. And she mentioned a whole lot of things. But one of the things she said is, is that we're actually very technically technology advanced you can order an uber anywhere in south africa just like you can in america um, and you're more or less saying the same thing you can order anything you want online from take a lot just like anywhere you can as well how do yeah. we get there how do you feel that we can get there that divide between four percent and twenty percent or twenty five percent I think there, there are a number of things that could definitely be supportive, and I'm sure there are others that I will not, I will, you know, I will miss out on. But fundamentally, I think first of all, you need an enabling environment, um, which means a regulatory framework that is very open to innovation, that is very open to um, to enabling entrepreneurs to develop and. Uh, and, and iterate as, as, as they evolve, because that's what is fundamental, because this is a new area for us, and adoption will require 
uh, a, a lot of uh, innovation, a lot of trial um, to to be able to to get to get things right. So I think that's one. The second is obviously um, continuing on the adoption of smartphones and, and, and access to affordable um, network. I think it is also about um, the the education around what e-commerce is that it is just retail delivered mm. to your door, yeah. um, and and so I think getting more people aware around um, what e-commerce unlocks for themselves and 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 in their networks is is an important one. Yeah. And we just need investment. Uh, we need um, investment in. Uh, in all of those areas, in the ecosystems that support uh, digital uh, in, in environments, so yeah, so I think those are some of the the, the big contributors towards that adoption. And so, I mean, I just want to talk quickly. I mean, we started off the conversation with really how much impact you're having in the industry as a woman executive, a black woman executive. You know, being one of, if not the most. Um, influential people in certainly e- e-commerce um how do you, and how do we get more women involved in e-commerce how do we get more women involved in technology because you're seeing it right <laughs> do you have any yeah. ideas yeah. i think it's about opportunity you know i you know it's the same question that i think we ask about uh, when you look at the stats around Women in running organizations, yeah. uh, listed organizations in JSE, women in STEM, women, every single area is like, how do we get more women? How do we get more yeah. black people involved, etc.? And I think it is fundamentally around one is those that are in the position to provide the opportunity is to to do so, to be open minded enough to engage with a diversity of Candidates, and I think that is the, you know, a big credit to uh, Kim Reed, who yeah. in when he was um, looking for uh, his successor, he mm. was very clear about, um, you know, that diversity is an integral part of, yeah. of that search, and he enabled that opportunity, um, you know, for for, for He didn't stumble. He uh, didn't stumble on it. He was he was very clear, right? What he wanted. He was very clear. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And and I think that is always our responsibility is, you know, each one lift one, you know. And, yeah. and I think it is an important aspect around how we approach providing opportunities to others, right? Um, and I think it is also about um, the, the, the mentoring, coaching, yeah. and self-development. Uh, if you are interested in getting into a particular sector or a particular function, as today it's a lot easier than it was 20 years ago because there's a lot of content online. There is, it's easier to connect uh, and network on LinkedIn and other platforms with people in those spaces to be able to get a bit more information around what it is that it, it takes to get into those spaces. So yeah. I think it is it is about deliberate provision of opportunities. It's about mentoring and coaching. It is also about uh, individual self development and reaching out um, yeah. to, to to others to uh, to to provide indication about how do I get into those uh, different spaces and making sure that it is what is right for you. Yeah, that's an important aspect as well. So, I mean, I remember before we we started speaking online, we spoke beforehand about your transition from these established sort of industries or legacy to this new opportunity. And um, is it is it you know f- f- I think there's a lot of excitement, and you mentioned that young people, exciting, fast paced, you know, e-commerce and technology, and there's a lot of people either who want to be in it from a you know startup stroke 
um, entrepreneur perspective, but there's also a lot of people, executives and people in their careers who want to get into it. Maybe, mm. and, and you made that transition. So you've done the hardest thing, right? You really put yourself out there. And, and so I just wanted to get into your mindset. Like what, what gave you permission to, to, to do that, to explore that? Yeah, I mean, it is <laughs> it, it is something that I guess when you when you when you look at kind of the career trajectory, you know, in the areas where I've worked, it, it's always been established businesses. Um, one of the things though that is not obvious from looking at my resume is that in a number of those roles, my roles were about establishing certain things that didn't exist. Um, yeah. moving into Tanzania, moving, you know, working at Apple Tower Those were all very blank slate opportunities. We had, this is what we're trying to do, or this is what we need to solve. You need to figure out how to do it and make it happen. Um, so I think having had those experiences of going into the deep end and having no clue uh, where to start did yeah. provide... Uh, that uh, that experience base to to know that these things don't kill you; they only make you uh, better. Yeah. Um, and I think what interested me here is that it, it is retail, it is about consumers, and it is about stakeholders. Yeah. And those are um, capabilities and experiences that one does learn, um, regardless of the size. Of, of the organization that you're in. Yeah. And there are some things that I, I have to unlearn, right? Yeah. And, and some of that unlearning is, uh, you know, the conservativeness of uh, big corporates where you have to prove and prove and prove and prove. And by the time you're ready to do something, you're already tired. Whereas here it's about do, um, it's about the concept of MVP and then move. And continuously iterate. Um, so it's it's always uh, going to be about certain transferable, you know, um, experiences and capabilities. Yeah. Some that you need to leave behind, and the new ones that you need to learn. And what yeah. gave me permission was, um, I guess, the the desire and and the the interest to say, what I love about this is is those. Um, there's two aspects that I talked about, which is about unlocking access to um, to products, uh, quality retail to uh, people in rural, peri urban, and, and urban areas. It doesn't matter what your geography, you, yeah. you're able to access those services. And secondly, the empowering nature of, yeah. of the platform with our restaurant partners as well as our sellers on uh, on the takealot.com uh, restaurant partners on this D is the, the, the how it empowers SMEs to be able to um, to grow on our platform and be part of our growth story, which for me is what I would call economic transformation. You know, yeah. behind design, it is literally the model for how do you transform um, the, the economy. It's Done naturally. To grow. Yeah. Organically, as you say earlier. Yes. And would that be would that frame part of your top three successes? Do you think for this year, or or, or would there be other things that would fall into that those three successes that you think within the year you've you've sort of seen for yourself? I think the the successes for me is is one is. Um, having invested the time to, to understand the experience yeah. um, and also appreciating that it doesn't stop. There is never a point of, I get it, uh, we have arrived. It's always got to be evolving. Um, and my, my biggest success is embracing the need to move quickly, this, this MVP concept. And it sounds like a small thing, but when you're in an entrepreneurial business, I cannot as a leader afford to be the handbrake on the speed of progress. You know, I have to be the fuel that that just keeps, you know, throwing, that 
diesel on the fire to say, go faster, go faster, and do it better, and, and keep doing it better as we, as we go along. It is it is a huge um, mindset to to be able to to get into that frame of operation. Um, and I think it's also embracing and engaging with with all of the the, the stakeholders in a constructive and um, and in a way that challenges us to say how do we move things forward. Um, so I think you know the artifacts for me is you know we win in teams here, and and so but the the successes are about where the collective is is delivering, and uh, and I think the. The, the, the team is is is, is doing uh, a, a great job in dealing with all of the complexities and the challenges that are always coming out of us and still be putting consumers first that for me is important. yeah the consumers first i mean i mean you, you you did a press release a little while ago that the elephant in the room is is probably that amazon is coming to south africa and in many ways you said well, it's a compliment and i think in many ways your figures are showing that as well in terms of you got you've entered profitability for the first time in 10 years you're really taking on a you know you've doubled almost the size of the market i mean you've done a huge amount of work to open up this market and i think like you said it's a, a huge privilege to have someone like or an honor for you to to show that an organization like amazon's looking at this market for, for, from our perspective I, I look at it as is does this mean um greater access greater improvements innovation is this is this where the industry can grow where there is competition now like this or you know what do you see what do you see the future for the consumer now that you have uh, i suppose some competition entering the market i think one of the things we must remember is that take a lot has always had competition mm. our competitions are uh, bricks and mortar. We've got a very, I mean, retail in this country is over a trillion rand industry, right? And so every single day, whatever I am selling, you can get elsewhere. Yeah. So this is not new competition. It's just another competitor joining uh, the e-commerce e uh, platform. And, and I guess how that future transpires really depends on what their approach becomes. And I, I don't have preview in terms of how they intend to play, but they yeah. have the opportunity to play a, a positive role in expanding uh, the adoption of, of e-commerce in this country. And so mm. if there is that investment approach, yeah. uh, if there is that enabling mindset, um, and if uh, from the outcomes of the competition commission that we are allowed as a business to continue to compete and to uh, contribute towards the transformation of the South African economy is that mm. all of these things could work together to, to help build uh, a much bigger e-commerce um, industry. I, I think I'm, I'm almost um, intrigued by the response of Amazon, and I, and I and I suppose why is because I, I know that you did an MBA with Harvard, and, and it's a very distinguished um, university, and I'd love to go into that. But but I think for me, I was also very much I'm always looking outside for success, and I was always looking at what America was doing, and I was always looking what Europe was doing. And for many years now, for over twenty years, we've been looking at what South African companies have been doing, and and. Um, it was interesting at Africa Tech. One of the judges said to me, "And um, Ralph, I don't think that we should have these internationals competing against the local South African companies." And I said, "No, no, I think that's where you're wrong, because actually, what we see from our side is how relevant and how successful our South African companies are compared to the other organisations." So for me, I'm like, "Bring it." <laughs> I think we have some wonderful and amazing companies. I mean, today we had sort of, you know, um, rolling blackouts, you know, in some places, level six, and we're still able to get on. And I think there's an attitude that comes from working and living on this continent in this country 
um, and a togetherness uh, with all our challenges and differences. It's actually, we, I feel we're more together. Um, and with the challenges with what's happening politically, it also, I think it's driving us closer together. I don't know if that's, if it's, if it's maybe cementing from a group level uh, that, that also like a, a newfound um, optimism. Okay. We've reached turnover. Let's bring on the competition. I don't know. Um, yeah. I think the, 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 the ambitions for the group have always been uh, self-driven and and, uh, and also being driven by um, what we call consumer centricity. So it's about how do we win for South Africans? And yeah. that will always be our North Star. Um, yeah. If we are able to provide a compelling um a compelling proposition for South African consumers and be relevant and be part of uh, growing and developing uh, this country's economy, providing opportunities for others to uh, to create even greater impact. That's really um, our, our motivation and our focal point. The competition and the challenges are just part of the context in which we operate. Uh, and we have to embrace and deal with them, um, but remain focused on what our key driving um, mission is. It was amazing speaking to you. And um, I think uh, Take a Lot's very lucky to have such an astute uh leader really i think you're very inspirational and um very calming so it was great to have you on the podcast we wish you all the best of luck um we we have shopaholics here so don't worry we we're already investing and take a lot <laughs> and and we look yes, forward to please, seeing your progress uh, thank you very much rob for the opportunity to engage about this great business uh, that is a proud south african business and uh, i encourage all of you um, if you're looking for the best fashion, if you're looking for your next cell phone, <laughs> and you just want to have dinner tonight without having to slave, we've got you covered. So There's nothing wrong with a good pun. I think sales is important in this country and we don't do enough of it. We don't, we're not selling ourselves <laughs> enough, to be honest. And I think you do, you're a great company and congratulations to you, really. So thank you so much for, for spending the time with us.